Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Only Foals and Racehorses podcast from Adventures in Black and White. I'm Rhea and yeah, episode 11, um, 11 of 12. So there's one more after this episode and then we're all done for season one. Um, thank you so much for your support so far. It's really nice. I love hearing your messages about how much you're enjoying the podcast. So um, after the end of this season, we will have a break, but I'll talk about that next week. This episode, we're going to talk about the rest of Australia. So I'd introduce you to the uh, delights of working in Sydney. Just discuss the yards. So let's head on and hear what else went on. So you've heard about the day-to-day workings of a racing yard. The best bit to move on to next, I suppose, would be uh, to explain about the racing because the racing over there is, again, a little bit different to the racing that I'd experienced in the UK and in Ireland. So we have the metropolitan tracks, which are the big tracks in the cities, and then you have your country tracks. And Australia is a funny place because the names are very, very strange. You have a lot of very sort of anglicised names like like Liverpool and Chipping Norton and then you'd have other names like Tawonga or Wagga Wagga so you had that blend and you never knew where you were going to end up and some of the racetracks have very funny names I think the first time I went racing was to the local tracks obviously to our track um, at um, Warwick Farm obviously because more horses were already there that was just a case of you walked your horse up to the race course. They have crossed eyes everywhere, um, which we would use on a day-to-day basis when your horses were being swapped over. One would be put in the cross ties while the other one would be got out. And these are the same cross ties that they'd use on race days. Um, they didn't have stables. So over in England, what we do is we uh, your horse arrives at the races and on most tracks, you would put your horse in a stable. And then you get him out half an hour or so before um, he was due to run and you'd start walking him round to warm him up. Obviously, you'd tack him up. Well, not tack him up fully, but obviously you'd get his bridle on and, and get him ready before that. So it is a little bit different because the horses literally, the poor things were just tied up. But when you were racing on your home track, this wasn't so much of an issue because obviously by the time we walked into the track that they'd already done a warm up, then we tacked them up and then did your pre-parade, your horse ran and went home as normal. So... When we went to other tracks, that would obviously involve a bit of a lorry trip. Not many of the yards had their own horse boxes, so you would travel on transport. And again, the transport would just be huge. Like they didn't have, at the point when I was there, they didn't have little two boxes. So you went on a big ass trailer attached to an Arctic unit. So, you know, if you remember from the episode when I said about how we got the yearlings to Sydney, it was the same sort of thing. And you sat in the back again in the cold in like a, basically a cattle trailer um, all the way to the races, which when it was warm was OK. But when it was cold, wasn't so great. I remember particularly one joyous meeting that I went to in Canberra, um, which is the capital of Australia. Top, top fact there. Um but we went to Canberra and Canberra was, I think it was a three hour journey from Sydney. It was a long way and it was down south. So it was cold down there. I traveled with my horse and he didn't have much of a chance, but, you know, I didn't mind going racing. I like going racing. And we got there and it was a bit like going to Wolverhampton on a Friday night. It, it really wasn't the most pleasant of places. There wasn't much for the staff. I don't actually remember the lads' canteens at all. I just don't remember any of that, which means it probably didn't exist because I usually remember the food items. And yeah, my poor horse travelled all the way there. We were freezing cold. I put him in his cross ties, waiting for my race. 
got him ready, walked him round, got, you know, got uh, everything done, dusted. I think he came second and there literally was no one there. There was like maybe five people cheering the race on. There was more staff than there was people. It was really sad, actually. And that's not what racing is all about. And it, it can be a little bit like that here now with all the racing, but it, it was a bit sad. And that was my one and only time we ever went to Canberra. So I didn't have the best uh, overall appearance of that place um, and I never went back I did go to another track um, oh this is a funny story so I can't remember the horse's name now which is really unusual but he was a lovely little horse bay horse so I was getting ready to go we were going to Tawonga I think that day and as I was getting him ready um, because I didn't really tie them up as such he just sort of did them in the boxes I was putting his boots on and he kneed me in the face and he smashed my glasses and because at this point I was the nice, polite English person who never complained about anything because I didn't want anyone to feel bad about me. I um, just sort of carried on. I didn't have a spare set uh, because I just didn't... Like, glasses are expensive, especially when you have, like, the prescriptions I do. So um, I didn't have a spare set. I did have some sunglasses, but we'll come on to that later. So I sort of went about... Now, because I wasn't wearing my glasses and I have like my eyesight is like minus four short-sighted so I basically can't see anything other than like what's four inches in front of my face clearly so this is this is an issue not wearing them is a, a massive issue but anyway I just got on with it and and said I was okay I had a bit of a black eye but I was all right and he said he still want to go and but that day we had a couple of horses running so it wasn't like I was going to be on my own so I said yeah I'll go and um yeah got on the the horse box and got there and it was really nice warm day but the whole thing was just ruined because I basically couldn't see and when you can't really see and then you're having to go around somewhere you don't know like that's difficult I don't actually even know how I led this horse up like like I said before Australia was like we just did some crazy dumb stuff while we were there and trying to lead a horse up when you had no idea where you were going what you were doing was and you couldn't see uh, was yeah not great but I don't even yeah I did lead it up though I do remember leading it up but yeah so anyway so the horse ran um thankfully in some ways it was a good thing that I couldn't see because one of the horses in his race broke a leg on the line and on this particular occasion there was a lot of people there so that really wasn't very nice and did put a whole dampener on it I don't even remember how the rest of the horses did and my horse didn't really come anywhere but yeah, so though I had to deal with that, well, not with that, that, I didn't have to deal with the poor horse dying. I had to deal with looking after my horse, again, blind. And then we got home and I said to the trainer, you know, look, my glasses are smashed beyond repair. And ironically enough, apparently he was an optician before he was a racehorse trainer. There is a little theme to the random jobs that some racehorse trainers do before they become trainers. Um, like Saeed was a police officer. How do you jump from being a police officer to being a racehorse trainer? I don't know. But actually being an optician is even more of a jump, I think. But there we go. Uh, so he said, oh, fine, so we'll do a good deal. And um, I will admit that I did claim this all on my insurance because he made it quite clear that even though the accident happened at work, that he wasn't going to pay, which was nice of him. But um, to be honest, I didn't really expect much more of him than that because of how he was. So I managed to uh, 
go to an optician's and got some glass in order and because of my prescription being so bad uh, they said oh you have to wait two weeks so this left me in a position that I had I couldn't see I couldn't drive I couldn't do anything because I couldn't see so I did have some prescription sunglasses that were a little bit like John Lennon glasses I don't even know why I picked them I actually don't think I did I think my mother probably picked them and they just looked awful but they were sort of the prescription that I had so I was there um, having to ride out horses in the morning and do everything basically wearing the most stupid sunglasses known to man which if you go over onto my Instagram I will put photos up of these of me with with the horses wearing these glasses uh, just so you can see how silly I looked. Obviously, the other lads, being racing lads, were uh, on Warwick Farm, picked up this pretty quickly. There's the silly English girl, and now she looks like Stevie Wonder. So they'd shout Stevie Wonder at me. They'd sing Stevie Wonder songs at me. And yeah, and then generally just actually really try and make my life even more difficult as well, because they obviously realised that there was a problem and I couldn't see. So that was joyous, absolutely joyous. I just, I loved it when I got my new glasses. I was just like, oh. Finally, that that whole episode was over, but it was two weeks and it seemed to take a long, long time. So as we were at Matt's, things were going on. He like he was a good trainer, um, but he was starting out. He was kind of cut corners, obviously, because there wasn't a lot of money. Although he did spend a lot of money on his uh, fiance's engagement ring, which we only knew because we used to drive his car about because he'd lost his driving license for drink driving. Um, so we used to have to drive him around. And um, one day we were driving it, me and Lynn. And well, I was driving it because Lynn didn't really drive in Sydney. And in the uh, the side pocket of the car was the receipt for his wife's, uh, his fiance's engagement ring. And I think that was one of the weeks when he hadn't paid us on time. So we were a bit miffed at just how much money he'd obviously been able to spend on that when he didn't pay staff. That's kind of a theme that you see a lot, not just in racing, in all sort of horse sports. Um, and yeah, his priorities were a bit slack, but that was fine. Well, it wasn't fine, but that's just how it is. The other thing, obviously, is we got he he grew while we were there and a couple of months we were there so we got more horses in so we needed more staff and staff over there pretty much the same problem they have here although like the money was good like it wasn't bad money at all so I don't know why they didn't have good staff I suppose I don't know how they trained people there was it didn't seem to be like a racing school type structure to encourage people into racing and like I said before they either seem to be jockeys or bull riders, so I just don't know where their sort of stream of normal stuff could come from. Anyway, so these th- we had a couple start, and because Matt paid for part of our house, he said, oh, they'll have to move in yours, and we were like, yeah, no, that's fine. I don't know how they got about. They must have a car, because we definitely never took them anywhere. But they were a bit strange, they were a bit loud, um, they were a bit opinionated, but they didn't have a lot of, like knowledge um so me and then just you know we did our thing and they did their thing and they were really quite messy and we just like we knew it wasn't forever so we just sort of put up with it and um by this stage we were going into winter so as i said in the last episode matt's fiance had said you know you don't need central heating in, in sydney because it's not that cold but when you live on the river it is and there was no central heating so what we did was we bought loads of um 
electric heaters because we weren't paying for the electric bill, Matt was. So we had loads of these little electric fan heaters, you know, the two kilowatt jobs that I think like we probably had a couple in each room. And you can imagine like the electric meter must have been spinning around when we had them all on. Anyway, um, these guys were like, you know, we're cold. We want an electric, you know, electric heater. And we were like, no, we bought these with our own money. Go and buy your own. And they never had any money. And which given that two of them worked, like we should have copped on. There was something not quite right about these guys. Anyway, we went, I think we had, we must have had a weekend off or like a, you know, day and a half off, whatever you have. Basil, who was the farrier from Coolmore, he had, um, he felt sorry for us because he knew we were working really, really hard. So on one of our weekends off, he played for us to stay in the Coogee Plaza. It was just so nice because it was, it was just, it, we, well, I'd stayed there one night during the sales, um, which I shouldn't have done, but that's a whole different story, which isn't really suitable for the podcast. But yeah, it was a lovely, the Coogee Bay Hotel was lovely and like the, the Crown Plaza there was just the best. So it was really nice that Balfi had paid for that for us. So we had a, uh, you know, night away in, in Coogee and we went to like the Sydney Aquarium and had this lovely time but what we did when we went on our little weekend away was that we hid all the heaters um because we didn't want them using them and we couldn't lock our rooms and by this stage we really didn't trust these people that were living with us which isn't a nice situation to be in but kind of it was very dodgy and they kind of then at this stage they'd also started not always turn up for work but obviously they were at home so that was a bit like mm, what's going on here so we went away for our lovely little weekend and then we came back and the house was like just a complete vile mess. The heaters are gone, like our heaters were gone out of our rooms. So they weren't there. So we went and looked in their rooms and in their rooms was like evidence of drug taking. Now, the only reason why I knew what it was was because sadly I had encountered it um, before at Hugh Morrison's where we had a particular ad there that had a massive problem and all the spoons went missing and anyone who knows if you know you know and there they were with the spoons and the tinfoil and they obviously had a very very bad drug problem so we obviously went straight to Matt and told them that we didn't feel you know him we told him we didn't feel very safe and I do remember it kicking off. I don't remember the exact bits of it. And I think this is why, uh, like I said last week, you know, it's funny what I don't remember about this. But I think because some of the stuff that went on was so traumatic that, yeah, it's probably best I don't. I just remember a lot of screaming, a lot of threats. The police may have been involved, but they were druggies um, and they were got rid of, which was good. And yeah. And it's funny because I was talking to Lynn about it and uh, the other day and then said like she barely remembers any of it either. So it clearly was quite traumatic. But yeah, so that was like, you know, and this problem happens like whether you're working in, you know, America, Australia, Ireland, UK, Europe, wherever. You know, you often have to share houses and you don't know who you're sharing with and what their background is. And a lot of the places, you know, you wouldn't even be able to lock your room. And that really isn't great. And it is something that needs to be addressed. But we were lucky, I think, that all they did was take our heaters. It could have ended up a lot worse. But anyway, so they left. And sort of towards the end of our time at Matt's, I just I just did what I had to. I got on, I rode these horses every day. Lynn was mostly on the yard and like we enjoyed it it was 
it was different, but it just got a bit samey and a bit frustrating. And we had like um, uh, Adam, the really good head lad, he left to go to another yard and Stephen really took over. And I think, I can't even remember if Kim was still there when he left, but it just wasn't the same and it, it just didn't have the same vibe. And like, in a way, we were quite glad we were going back to the UK. And actually... If I remember rightly, um, I did organise to come back to the UK quite a bit sooner than we planned. I think I was meant to be there for another two months. But I was just like, no, we need to go home. Yes, that's right, actually, because we came home in August and we were meant to be there until October, until I began university again. So, yeah, by the end, by the end of July, like we were like going, you know, we need to go home. And it was sad, but, you know. There was no point hanging around. We decided that what we were going to do was um, before we came home because our money was going to be worth nothing. And like, what's the point of going to the other side of the world and not seeing anything? So we took two weeks holiday at the end. Um, we changed the flight ticket to earlier and we did leave Matt in a, in a good way. And he very kindly agreed to look after our bags for us for the two weeks because obviously we had a lot of gear and we didn't want to take our big rucksacks with us. So we uh, went on a little Australian venture. So what we did was um, obviously we got a load of money and we knew we had to spend it all. And we'd had a look at the things we wanted to do. And obviously... One of the biggest things you want to do when you go to Australia is go to see um, the Whitsundays and the Great Barrier Reef because they're not going to be there forever. I think they're saying like in our lifetime, there won't be the Great Barrier Reef anymore. So we would really want to go and see that. So we thought the best idea was we flew up to um, Cairns and then we got a bus ticket back, um, a Greyhound bus. And so basically with the deal was with the bus that you could get off it wherever you wanted. So that, that was handy. So we've flown up to the top of the east coast of Australia and we're basically heading down, going to like all the proper touristy spots. So we started in Cairns and um, we went off and we did a yacht trip for a couple of days and that's when we got to snorkel on the Great Barrier Reef which was literally the most amazing thing ever and I'm so glad I did it um, and it is what it was winter by the time we were doing this but we were we were still there in our bikinis and whatnot on the beach and it was like everyone could tell you know there's the Europeans because we were out there and they were all in their little jumpers and and there we were <laughs> just enjoying it but we did stay in quite a few dodgy little hostels but obviously our time racing over there uh, we got well used to uh, the accommodation and we weren't like we're not being snobby about it but it, like we obviously we were a little bit further down the line and the people in the rooms so we used to sleep on top of our bags and stuff like that but um, we worked our way down and we went to um, Harvey Bay and we saw whales. We went to the Dingo Island where the dingoes stole the babies. We did the Gold Coast. Um, we did Byron Bay, which was, yeah, funny. And it, it's quite what I find funny now is obviously if you've ever seen the Inbetweeners movie where they go to Australia, like there's so many other places. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And it, it's quite funny. But um, yeah, Byron Bay was uh, an education and we just worked our way back down, back to Sydney. And yeah, I would recommend to it. If you're going to work out there, do try and see at least some of the culture because there was things that happened while we were on holiday. And it was, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. You properly got to learn about Australia. Working with the Australians you do anyway, because 
their culture is so interesting and you know the the clash of you know the natives and then obviously the incomers and and all of that it was interesting hearing it from all sides so yeah that was great and then we were getting ready to come home and that was going to be the end of it for me and, and Lynn I don't know I think Lynn at that stage had said she was going to do she really got to sales. She'd never done the sales before. So she really, really liked the sales and she was going to do that. And I was worried because I hadn't done my full year out, although I didn't need to worry about that because literally I don't think anyone from my year properly did the full year out like I did. And so what I'd done was I'd um, got in touch with a stud that was local to um, university and um uh, asked them if I could do yearling prep for them, which because obviously by this stage I'd worked for Coolmore, they 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 didn't know me, they'd never met me. Uh, it was all done over email and um, one telephone call at a stupid time of night. They'd offer me a job, so I knew I was going back to a job. And because of when the yearling sales are in the UK, I knew that I'd have to miss the first couple of weeks of uni. Um, so I negotiated that. It was my final year. And they said, no, it's fine because I was doing something related to the, the career I wanted to go into. But that was absolutely fine. So I was heading back to go to um, Curtinington Stud, which was really, really nice. And I was really looking forward to it. But um, before we get onto that, and actually that will probably be next week's episode, the journey back from... Australia so if you remember when we went out I was the one that didn't get jet lag and I literally slept the whole way and yeah I was absolutely fine when I came back from Australia I couldn't sleep um and when we flew back we didn't have the empty plane like we did on the way over there and I know we were sat right at the back of the plane which I now know is the worst place to sit or just ride comfort in general. Like you want to sit in the middle if you want a decent seat, just top tip. That's why when we fly horses, we fly horses in the middle of the plane. We don't put them at the very back or the very front because that's not the best place for them to be. And that's where you get the dodgier journey. So yeah, we were right at the back. So we couldn't recline our seats. So if you can imagine sitting on the plane for 28 hours and not being able to recline your seats, but the people in front of you can, and they are like the rudest Americans you've ever come across. Yeah, that was nice. And then because also I was vegetarian, so you get your food first on the plane when you're vegetarian. One of the meals, I remember I was literally just about to start a meal and they decided to recline their seat while I was trying to eat my meal. So it ended up on my lap. Yeah. So I think that's why my legs probably blew up like it did. But I literally, not only did I have jet lag, but my legs blew up. I swelled up um, and I did do lots of exercises. But anyway, it was it was traumatic because I got back and I wanted to do the whole Bridget Jones airport scene with my boyfriend. And I even got changed the toilet and I got Lynn to take the photo of us. And it, it wasn't Bridget Jones at all. Actually, and stuff had happened while I was away. So it was kind of all a bit false. I don't know why I did that. But, you know, that's what you do when you're 21. You think that the world sort of great and this is what you're gonna do but no it wasn't Bridget Jones at the airport scene at all but hey ho that's how things work out <laughs> um so yeah so I got back and I was all swollen and I'd had this Bridget Jones moment and then I had to go off to start my new job at Kirtlington and I arrived there and I must have looked like an elephant I could barely walk um 
and yeah, what a great first first experience that was. So there we go. So I'd left Australia. I think in many ways Australia was the, the time that really changed me and helped me become the person I am now. It gave me resilience, um, tolerance, and also I was rewarded for being brave. So it, it just shows me that if I wanted to do something, I could. And then, like, obviously, through the course of making this podcast, thinking about all the things we did, um, the mad things and the nice things, uh, it really did show that I was, uh, I had this ability to be a better person. Um, and uh, also, I really enjoyed working with horses and that uh, there was so much that was out there that I could do. And it really opened my eyes to that. So, um that was the good things and there we go yeah so that's that's Australia I've hope you enjoyed the last three episodes of that um like I said there's only one more episode left to this podcast that's coming next week and it will come next week it's gonna be a long one because it's finishing off my university days and uh the Kirtlington bit is obviously gonna be quite a big bit that was that's gonna be epic so um if you don't want to miss out, make sure you subscribe on uh, Spotify or iTunes or just head over to my um, website and the page is uh, always updated there with my new podcast. And yeah, thank you for listening. See you next week.